Um, We will be reading out of Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And someone of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said. They, they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of the father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Again, if you're just now joining us, we're glad you're here. My name is Evan Skelton, one of the pastors here. And our church is a very simple church that is about one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like every church should really be about. We've been given a mission by Jesus Christ to be about him, to declare him, to make sense of what, who he is and what he has done. Now we recognize, though, that many who come here uh, may not share Christian convictions. In fact, we want this service to be one of the primary places where those who are not believers, not Christians, can begin to comprehend and make sense of the gospel. And so if that's you, know that you are in the right place. We are glad you are here. And if you have any questions about our service, please grab myself or one of the elders. We'd love to fill in the gaps. We'd love to connect the dots for you. Um, But we are, again, about the good news of what Jesus himself has announced and every Christian has announced Um, from generation to generation to generation. And we're going to be focusing on that good news even today in the Gospel According to Mark, a book that is about who Jesus is, even as it's about what he has come to do. And I can't help but connect, sorry, excuse me, this passage, the triumphal entry, to Christmas itself. And I think you're going to see why in just a second, although it may not feel like a very traditional Christmas passage I think in many ways it should be incorporated into the canon, one of the ones that we read. But nonetheless, we're going to turn there and unpack it together, a story that may be familiar to some and totally unfamiliar to others, but regardless of how you're coming here, we are excited to see what God has for us today. So, um, but uh, this, um, you know, in this service, I, I, I have to tell you, I struggle between knowing whether to wish you a happy Advent or a Merry Christmas. Now, of course, it may not seem... Uh, seem this time of year, of course, Merry Christmas is the greeting you hear most everywhere, or ha- some version of Happy Holidays. But you may not realize that we're actually in a very important and precious season in uh, a, what is called the church calendar. Uh, really, the, ch- the church, Christians throughout the centuries, have chosen to structure their year by the life of Jesus Christ, by, at various points in their year, remembering what he has done. 
It's why we celebrate Christmas. It's why we celebrate Easter. It's why, depending what tradition you grew up in, you may have practiced Lent or a variety of these different traditions. All of these things are meant to structure our lives, not by our work or by any other secular routines and rhythms, but by Jesus, by the Bible. And so this time of year, we're in a season called Advent, in which Christians have customarily refrained from wishing each other Merry Christmas until Christmas itself. Not that you're in sin if you wish somebody Merry Christmas this morning. Keep doing so. But here's why. Because they wanted those four weeks to be about practicing our waiting, our longing, our anticipation. I just kicked the mic. I'm sorry. The, uh, I'm very excited about this. The, uh, that um, in this time of year, they wanted to slow down and feel the awkwardness of the season. To feel that we aren't there yet. That it's just on the horizon, that it's almost here. I mean, how many of us are sick of celebrating Christmas by the time Christmas comes? Advent is meant to actually produce the opposite. And this time of year, we're actually surrounded by all sorts of reasons and symbols that have been built into this time of year by Christians that by now might feel a little bit plastic and cliche. It's why you're grocery store gets a Christmas makeover or carols take over the radio as soon as Thanksgiving wraps up or Hobby Lobby starts displaying Christmas items soon after the 4th of July. It's why we have greenery wrapping street poles or electric lights hanging from gutters, people anxiously purchasing gifts for the friend they forgot. Even the red ribbon that you cast aside on a, on a Christmas morning all of these are haunting symbols that have been celebrated intentionally by Christians, connecting them to the life found in Christ, the light found in Christ, and eventually the blood shed. These symbols, which today seem just part of the season, as plastic and cliche as that 30th version of Silent Night on the radio, these were birthed from a season which Christians again sought in which to slow themselves for four weeks of a year to feel the supernatural significance of what happened on an otherwise ordinary night 2,000 years ago to see what was hidden in the babe lying swaddled in the manger and to feel their longing still for his return. Advent, again, is a word that means arrival or coming referring to first the first coming or arrival of Jesus in a Bethlehem manger, the eternal son of God born as a breastfed infant, the mysterious merging of divine and human nature in one sleeping babe, God with us. Again, which would have seemed just as ordinary and ignorable to his people as the Christmas tree might seem in your living room right now. Advent reminds us of an event where God was doing more than meets the eye. And today we are going to consider an event that is very much the same. Another arrival, again by Jesus, again more ignorable than we might think, but just as charged with supernatural significance. In fact, you might say that it's charged with even more significance than the birth in Bethlehem as Jesus draws ever nearer to the purpose for which he was born, the purpose of his coming, stepping ever closer to his death and resurrection. Today we're going to look at the event 
that is often referred to as the triumphal entry. Though I think we're going to see in Mark's gospel, it could perhaps be called the anti-triumphal entry. Today I want to consider these passages, this passage in three parts though. Following the three three stages of Jesus' arrival. The king's plans, number one. Number two, the king's procession. And number three, the king's presence. The king's plans, the king's procession, and the king's presence. Are you ready? I hope you will keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 11 as we consider what's hiding beneath the surface of each of these events as they unfold and how it should inform us on who Jesus is. But let's begin with the first, the king's plans. Now Mark chapter 11 begins with the capital city of Israel coming just over the horizon. You may be familiar with its name, Jerusalem. Although it goes by actually many titles throughout the Bible. It's called the City of David. It's called Zion. Even the City of God. It was a city where the palace and the temple once stood together, and you could have no more important city in Israel. It was the city famously where their king reigned and their god was worshipped and even though it was no longer the great capital of old in Jesus's day after all it was occupied by Rome and the temple there was a shadow of what Solomon's temple had been and there was no king now resting upon its throne even in those days many longed to see the city for themselves in fact we had We have to remember that this is a day before you could share photos of your Jerusalem trip on Instagram. Or you could hop on a plane and go see it as long as as you had the money and the time. For many, to visit Jerusalem meant a journey of not just days, but perhaps weeks at a time. A city that they may only see once in their lifetime. Many Jews would make a pilgrimage to the city just to see Jerusalem's gates. Why? Well, in their law, they are told to do so. They are instructed to do so. Actually, so, off, so far as they can, three times a year during the festivals of Shavuot, Sukkot, and Pesach, or otherwise known as Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, and the Passover, that they might worship and sacrifice at the temple. After all, Jerusalem was the center of, the, of, the Jewish, of Jewish worship. But perhaps even more so, many made this journey because they longed to do so. In fact, the next time you're reading the Psalms, I want you to notice how often the holy city shows up. What does it mean that, it's, that David says, I long to, uh, uh, for this alone, to to uh, dwell in the presence of your glory, to, to be in the house of the Lord forever. What does he mean by this but a longing to see God in his city? And so many would again ascend the road to the city of God, singing psalms along the way, bringing palm branches, symbols of their national pride. Because that city there, Jerusalem, it served as an outpost, a security of God's promises Proof that God would never really leave or forsake them. 
even when they were in exile and Jerusalem had, one day, had, had been in fact burned. That city had now been rebuilt, showing their God was faithful, that he could be trusted and they could trust him again tomorrow and the next day. And the next day. So every time that they saw that city, again, they would see a reminder that their God could be trusted, that their God even soon would redeem them, particularly at Passover, when it seems a particular journey, this particular journey that Jesus is a part of took place, because at Passover, they would remember the greatest redemptive event in the entire Old Testament, the event of the Exodus, in which they had been led out of slavery and into a relationship of love with God himself. Their exodus from Egypt, they would remember once a year through this, uh, fe- this uh, feast that Jesus himself observes in the Last Supper, but it also symbolized the greater exodus that they awaited, a greater redemption that they knew that they even needed now. In seeing Jerusalem standing there once again, they might believe then that redemption was still on its way, that they had not been abandoned, and modern Jews would sing even at the end of their Passover meal today, next year in Jerusalem. But instead of entering into its gates, Jesus does something interesting. He breaks away from the disi- with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, just as he's about to get near the city. We find in our passage that Jesus and his disciples gather on what will become a very familiar hill, the hill where the Garden of Gethsemane sat, a hill which sat 300 feet above Jerusalem at its eastern side. Why? Because as Jesus says, before they would enter, he has an errand for them to run. Go into the village, he says, and there you'll find a colt, a colt that has been unridden, and when you find him there, untie it and bring it to me. It's strange, isn't it? I don't know if you've reflected on this. Why in the world Jesus pauses before entering the city for a seemingly random errand? Why doesn't he enter the city with the pilgrims who are on their way? And why does in the world, in the world does he need a donkey, let alone a donkey's foal, a donkey's child, a, a, uh, uh, a specifically an unbroken one, one that had never been ridden? Why, in fact, Does he get so specific that it's not just a foal, but that foal, the foal that you would find in the village? It's all of it very unexpected. I mean, is Jesus tired? Is that why he asks for a beast of burden? But then why that beast of burden? Why not a horse or a normal-sized donkey, for that matter, to carry a full-grown man? Surely there was another one that they could borrow Maybe they wouldn't be accused then of stealing it either. It's strange to be sure, but I think, like I said before, this is one of many events here which there's more going on than meets the eye. You see, one of the central questions everyone has been asking about Jesus in Mark's gospel is who Jesus is, let alone if he can be trusted. We're going to see many differing opinions about this, especially in the passages to come. In fact, many regarded him, though, that those who saw him with favor as a prophet, maybe even a prophet on par with the prophets of old, like Elijah or Jeremiah or more recently John the Baptist. But Jesus' disciples were increasingly convinced that Jesus was something more, maybe even the Christ. They had 
become so convinced they'd even gone public with it. Jesus, again, affirming the very famous statement from Peter himself, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were certain that Jesus was not just a prophet, but the king that Israel had waited for, a king that they had been told to wait for ever since God gave the promise to David of a son that would be greater than him, a king that would finally come to redeem them, a king they had not seen any candidate for for hundreds of years. And the closer they got to Jerusalem, you can imagine among the disciples, the more they would have been buzzing with anticipation wondering if this was it if they were really right then coming to the city of god to david's own city truly this is where david the son of david would reveal himself if this may be the moment where jesus finally steps out behind the shadows and reveals himself to be the king that they knew he was after all if he was the rightful king this and this was the city of david Jesus was about to come into his own. On the other side of those gates surely awaited the kingdom they had waited their whole life to seize. And even though it would come through conflict, that much they were sure of, they were ready for their Messiah to finally take his gloves off and show everyone, especially the Romans, just what he was capable of. And as strange as it might sound, with the simple request of a donkey's foal, of a donkey's colt, Jesus confirms it. You see, as soon as Jesus would have commissioned this errand, told them to, the two unnamed disciples, to go on their way, the disciples together would have been buzzing. They would have thought of a prophecy from the Old Testament, which linked the coming of their king with the sign of a colt. Specifically, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I wonder if we can put that on the screen. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Thanks, guys. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Zechariah was a prophet, a very important prophet in Israel's history. There's a book of the Bible devoted to his name, where this prophecy comes from. But he actually shows up in a different book. He shows up in the book of Ezra. A prophet who also served as a priest, who lived during one of the most important periods of Israel's history. Their return from their exile in Babylon. They had lost everything, but then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, God sends them home. And on the emperor's dime, no less, to rebuild their temple. In fact, Zechariah, in conjunction with the prophet Haggai, helped to motivate Israel to rebuild the temple which now stood in Jerusalem, the same one that they would gather to worship, the same one that the exiles would have journeyed to see. However, as exciting as a time, a time it would have been during Zechariah's life, a time in which they had returned home and again rebuilt their temple, it would have also been a very, a very discouraging time, an incredibly discouraging time for the people. It tells us that on that day when the foundations of the temple were laid, two sounds could be heard. Sounds of great rejoicing and sounds of great weeping. Because the temple that was built there in the city a generation later 
would have only been a shadow of its former self. And the people recognized themselves, even now, still very much in slavery. Not necessarily to the Babylonians anymore, but still slaves nonetheless, as they would be passed from Medo-Persia to Greece, and now to Rome. Which is where Zechariah 9 enters in, in Zechariah's book, is he gives the people a vision of a hope still on the horizon. That their king... The king they've longed for and the king that they probably have given up on is still coming home and he will bring righteousness and salvation with him. And if you want to go to the next slide. But do you know how he will do it? Do you know how you will know him? Oh, sorry, I meant the other half of Zechariah 9, 9. That's okay. And how will you know him? He will come humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, Jesus, more than anyone, understands the importance of his entry into Jerusalem. And more than anyone, wants to make clear how he will come. Not simply as a prophet or a miracle worker, but he intentionally chooses to picture himself this way, identifying with these words, portraying himself clearly in the eyes of everyone as the king himself. One of the reasons this is so important is because some have accused the gospel writers, those who wrote the gospels, to uh, be making Jesus out to be more than he was. They claim that Jesus never actually understood himself to be the Messiah, let alone God, and that he was simply misunderstood, made out to be more than he ever intended. And this is pretty popular. I teach college students, and most of my college students, including those I would say the majority of those who were raised in the church would say that Jesus only considered himself to be a good teacher, but never God. Many look at the Bible as something of legend, that any statements that seem to indicate that Jesus himself was God must be dismissed. We must look at the actions. But then you look at this event, this action of Jesus, and I have to tell you it can be understood no other way than to have claimed to be the king, the Messiah awaited from God. All this fails to square, you know, these claims that many make that Jesus never intended to claim the title Christ with this prophecy. It fails to match an action that is too far strange to be a coincidence, and we'll see how strange it is in just a second. After all, Jesus intends to make it abundantly clear that he at least considered himself to be the king long awaited. In fact, you might ask yourself as you read this passage, why Mark gives us so many details about how the cult was obtained. It's a little obnoxious. It switches into slow motion as Jesus prepares them for when they will be asked and then tells us that they were asked and what they did afterwards. Why is such a seemingly insignificant event that's given such extended detail? Because Jesus doesn't see this as insignificant at all, and neither would his disciples. Jesus, even though this might be missed by many in the crowds, he does not want it to be missed amongst his closest followers. And Jesus is taking care to make clear that he is no less than the Christ he thought he was, they was, but he is actually so much more. The whole thing doesn't read as someone who is swept into a mob frenzy, but of careful, controlled intentionality. As if Jesus was considering his steps 
as he was enacting events long planned. Jesus, every step, every decision, every choice in this short passage speaks of one who is not haphazard, but intentional in what he does. In fact, the very title he insists on being referred to, the Lord, speaks to God's own sovereign authority. In other words, what we see in Jesus is the same purposeful sovereignty which preceded his birth, the fruit of plans which reached back to the foundations of the earth. Jesus reveals the same purposeful will as the Heavenly Father, who Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. In other words, Jesus knows where he's going and wants everyone else to as well. He goes with the same sovereign intention, the same purposeful care, the same radical sovereignty that God the Father himself has. It is events like this that led C.S. Lewis to mock any reduction of Jesus, which dismisses him as simply a great moral teacher, as popular as it is. As Lewis puts it, Jesus has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. He is either as he claims, or he is a liar. He intended to be seen as a king, and this would be his coronation. But what kind of king is the question, and that's perhaps where I want to spend most of our time today. Which leads to the second stage, the king's procession. You see, sure enough, the disciples find this promised colt, which Jesus may have worked out earlier with its owner. It's not entirely clear if this is a matter of Jesus's, again, all-knowing nature, which was often veiled during his ministry, or if he had worked this out beforehand. Nonetheless, Jesus brings this colt to, or they bring it to Jesus, rather, at his procession, and he mounts it. At first, it's incredibly exciting. We find the whole crowd swept into it as, the, as just like King Jehu in the Old Testament, people begin to scramble to honor him, to cast their cloaks on the beast. Even the road along the way with the, their cloaks and the branches that they had brought to celebrate, again, to remember their Messiah's coming victory, celebrating perhaps that this might be him in their midst. Even now, it seems that the crowd recognizes a king when they see one, and they want him to touch no unclean thing again, shouting Hosanna, a word which means, God, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. All of it is very exciting. You might even consider it triumphant, depending on how you are familiar with these events, the whole thing, again, can feel quite exciting, even triumphal. And yet, I want you to picture also, if we slow down enough with Mark's gospel, to notice how anti-triumphal it is. First, it's not actually all that clear how aware the crowd is about what is happening, especially as Mark describes it. Mark you see, gives more space to Jesus' preparation for his ride than the ride itself. And even the statements they make as Jesus enters the city are wonderful, but they seem to fall short of saying, here he is, 
Here is our king. Instead, they say something like, blessed be the kingdom whenever it comes. Add to that, the Romans are clearly not concerned about the whole thing, even if some do consider him to be their king, at least the disciples. Perhaps it's the small size of the crowd. And the fact that the crowd seems to dissolve almost as soon as it enters the city. All of this questions how all in the crowd is even now, let alone the whole city on this son of David. Perhaps a great deal of this has to do with how, though, Jesus chooses to enter the city. Think about it for a second. Even with the cloaks spread over this young foal, Jesus is riding something that is well, pretty unimpressive, to say the least. He rides a colt, perhaps small enough that Jesus' feet might have been trailing a few inches off the ground. Add to that, having never been ridden before, you can probably imagine the anxiety of the poor thing now weighed down by a full-grown man in the midst of a jostling crowd. It's probably why Matthew tells us, um, another gospel writer, that the colt was actually accompanied by its mother at the time, probably to keep the poor thing from bolting in terror. It's a quite ridiculous thing, to be honest. And no wonder it didn't concern the Romans. Looking on, the whole thing might have seemed quaint, maybe even ridiculous. And yet more is going on under the surface than we realize. After all, think of how different Jesus could have chosen to arrive. Perhaps in our imagination should have arrived into Jerusalem. If he really was the king, how do we expect a king to come? How many of you have ever seen replays of the queen's own inauguration, or what is it, with her uh, coronation, of the queen's own coronation? You think about all the majesty and the symbolism and the crowds and the fanfare, how much money is expended for such an occasion, and you see the opposite here. Jesus' arrival doesn't come with fanfare and strength. It doesn't come with the same kind of commanding respect or even an army. It's embarrassingly meek and humble. It doesn't exactly demand our attention. Perhaps the uh, best symbol I can think of this is the Mona Lisa. Anybody ever seen the Mona Lisa in person? Mona Lisa has been described as the best-known, most visited, most written about, most sung about, and most parodied work of art in the world. And yet, if you've seen it in person, the painting itself stands little over three feet high and two feet wide. I've heard many who've seen it in person and say it is shockingly underwhelming. Now, I'm not intending to be an art critic here. I think the Mo Mona Lisa is genius, but nonetheless... My point here is that Jesus' arrival is similar and that it blink and you would miss it. Jesus' arrival on a donkey's foal may have seemed underwhelming, ordinary, a bit too humble, you might say. A bit like a baby being delivered out in the cold, placed into a feeding trough, attended by smelly shepherds and livestock. Not exactly the arrival you might spec, expect. And yet, all of this is as intentional as the placement of the stars in the sky 
or how high the mountains go. God intended to arrive this way. Have you considered that? The God of the universe, a God of infinite glory who deserves the worship of all creation, when he chooses to arrive, when he chooses to come, when his promised king is sent, why this way? Think of all Jesus has to say about greatness thus far. You see, Jesus, throughout his ministry, is turning our expectations on their head. The greatest are not those who assert themselves, in his view, who push themselves forward, who show off their strength and stature. The greatest make themselves the least. And in Jesus' own words, the greatest, in fact, make themselves servants, even slaves of all. Jesus doesn't just demand, in other words, that we follow that way, that we take the way of humility, of servanthood, of taking up the cross, even. Here he models it. He embodies it. He makes himself the servant of all. What we see pictured on the foal of a donkey is a king who describes himself as gentle and lowly, a humble, peace-bringing vulnerable king. In fact, for those who were listening to God's word, this should have been what they were always to expect. Their greatest king, David, after all, was once passed over by the prophet Samuel. In fact, their first king was the people's choice. David was not. And even later, how was David remembered? But as the great shepherd king. A metaphor by which all of Israel's leaders would be evaluated by from then on. Not by their military might, but how they cared for their people as God shepherded his own people like sheep. A king who rules not with might and anger, but with all the kindness and patience and gentility of a shepherd. The problem is, is that is not the king that we expect, and sometimes it's not the kind of king we even respect. For many, the kind of king we want is one who is successful and powerful. But more than that, we want a king who is successful and powerful because we feel like if we hitch our wagon to them, we might gain the same. We see in our heroes, we see in our kings, we see in those things that we make of central importance in our lives, a path to what I want, a path to achievement, a path towards the kind of future I might even feel like I am owed, like James and John, just verses back. We want a king who will come conquering, but even more importantly, a king that will make me his right-hand man. That is why many, even here, missed Jesus. They moved on from Jesus. He wasn't this kind of king for them. They and if we're not careful, we might do the very same thing. Again, you and I, we give ultimate importance to things and people that make us feel great, that make us feel important, that make us feel significant and valued. I'm sad to say that even in my own life, I think about how many times I, how, how, how often the criteria I, that goes into when I give someone time or attention, or compassion, 
is what's in it for me. Perhaps I'm not the only one who's ever been in a conversation where somebody's been looking over their shoulder the whole time. How many of us have done the same to others? Here we have, again, a king who demonstrates humility, the kind of king that we need, but the kind of king I fear, apart from God's own grace, that we ourselves would reject. We have little time for the unimpressive and weak ourselves. And it may find, though, that we have been discarded when our weakness is shown. Some of you know exactly what this feels like. In Isaiah 53, God describes the servant, a passage I read earlier, the Messiah, whom he would send. And in verse 2, he tells us, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, the reason that Christ would be rejected is not just because he says offensive things or asks people to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, but because when it comes down to it, by many estimations, Jesus himself would seem to be unimpressive. He wouldn't be wanted because we wouldn't think he is what we needed. The self-satisfied throughout Jesus' ministry always are the ones who find him ugliest and most forgetful. He is not the king they think they need. But as strange as it seems, What we need most in the end actually turns out to be a humble king, a gentle king, a king who does not steamroll the weak or dismiss the lowly. In fact, we need a king who has made himself lowly. If we're listening to all that Jesus has to say about who we are, we need a king who isn't only for the impressive and qualified. We need a king who is for the poor and sinners. As we looked last week, what are we, friends? We are beggars pointing one another to the bread. We need a king who doesn't ha- just have authority, but a king who uses it and l- in love and kindness for the ones who need it most and are the last to earn it. We need a king who is both humble and gentle, who attends to those who are lowly themselves. Strangely, just as Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, this king, who still insists on coming the humble way, is exactly the king we need. Which leads finally to the king's presence. And by this I mean P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not presence as in Christmas ones. Looking back at our passage, I have to tell you, the whole thing ends on kind of a letdown, doesn't it? This seemingly triumphal entry dissipates rather quickly as Jesus enters the city, and almost as quickly as the crowd has gathered, it seems to have scattered. And then strangely, where should Jesus go? But immediately into the temple. The king, if he is to believe, the king of God's people now enters the house of God, which again 
we might expect to meet with great fanfare. Looking in the Old Testament, you think about when, Je- when, sorry, not when Jesus, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant home, the dancing and parading and celebrations involved. And here we see none of it. We expect perhaps now that he has finally come through Jerusalem, maybe the first sign of miraculous power, the first call to the troops, the first sign that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, as they declared. But it seems he enters this temple alone, save his disciples. And it would seem he perhaps examines it in silence and leaves the once bustling city jockeying to get near him goes outside its gates. What's going on here? Again, something hidden, I think, under the surface. What seems to be the most ordinary and unremarkable event of all is perhaps the most significant of all if Jesus really is as he claims. You see, the temple... And the reason it was significant to the Jewish people is it was intended to be the place where Israel met with God, the place where God's presence showed up in concentrated power. But the last time they had felt that concentrated power of its presence had been, had been hundreds of years prior, as it had left the temple prior to the exile. Ezekiel chapter 11, one of its most famous visions, speaks of the Spirit of the Lord departing the temple of God. And where does that glory go? Interestingly, and I encourage you to go back to these verses, Ezekiel 11, verse 22 through 23. Do you know where it says the glory of the Lord departed to wait? East of the city, on a mountain known as the Mount of Olives, where his spirit would return from again. Interestingly, other than the temple curtain tearing at Jesus' own crucifixion, nowhere in the Old Testament or New do we hear anything specific about this glory ever coming back, about this presence ever residing once again. What does this mean if it's true that God's presence had not returned even hundreds of years after theirs? That for the first time since the exile, God himself steps foot in his house. This time in the person of Jesus. To examine his house, you could say, to see if it's fit for his return. And unfortunately, what he finds there, as we will see in passages to come, which Larry will unpack in a couple weeks, we find a people who are no more ready for their God than when they first returned. In fact, what would take them to be ready, as Jesus knows, is perhaps was on the forefront of his mind as he examines that temple for that presence to come, for their king to come, would be for him to humble himself in an ultimate way. To become not just ordinary and forgettable, but ugly, mocked, and rejected. In the span of perhaps a week's time, the same crowd that shouted, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, will shout, crucify him, crucify him. Is this accidental? Does Jesus knows, know where he is going? 
According to this passage, we have to believe that he has the same sovereign control as the Father himself. Each step is purposeful. None is out of turn. And perhaps now, as he is in that temple, and then walks down the hill to Bethany, he readies himself again for his own final rejection. That those who would humble themselves, that come to him as lowly, recognizing in that lowly king the one they need, we might soon see him come in glory, treated with all the worship and fanfare that he deserves. Friends, that is the hope of Christmas. And this time of year, we're reminded again of supernatural importance hidden beneath the surface, not just in the symbols and the greenery, not just in the carols, but as we talk about what it means for a baby to be born in a manger. God with us. After all, we recognize what that cost. And perhaps now, at any time, if there's any time of the year that's more appropriate for us to speak of these, this king, friends, our culture has given us permission to do so. As Christians, what it means to identify with this humble king, first of all, well, let me say uh, to those who don't yet, if you're looking for a king that would be more impressive, a king that would be more like our celebrities, friends, you're going to have to look a different place, but it's not the one that you need. But if you will, in responding to him, see yourself as meek and lowly, the one who needs a savior who isn't cruel but receives the undeserving, and you will see what he's done for you, Soon enough, friend, you will know the joy of following in that king, even if it means your own humility, even if it means you walk the way of the cross. But friends, even this time of year, I encourage you, there are those around, I want, there is a way for us even now to show what it means to have hope in a lowly savior and one who has made himself weak and humble by identifying with the weak ourselves. One of the ways we show that we are Christians is not just by humbling ourselves, but by drawing near the humiliated, the suffering, the poor, and the broken. Because isn't that what our Savior has done for us? And in his death and resurrection, even now as we see him enter and have the fanfare dissipate, we're reminded of what Philippians 2 says. Let me turn there the greatest reason we have for this humility. Give me a second. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is hidden in Christ's humility won't be hidden forever, friends. Soon we will see the humble king reign in glory. And even now we have an opportunity to demonstrate what it's like to hope in him. But in closing, I want to read these lines from that song that we sung that was new to many of us. O come, all ye unfaithful. Even as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, even to celebrate Christmas, this recognition is of immense importance. O come, all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. Come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Come, bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken, come of taste of his perfect love. Come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing. Come, he is the offering. See what your God has done. Lord, we come to you as those who want to see more clearly than we do, including me. We want to see the king that we might otherwise reject. We need your help to do so. Our minds are too consumed with petty things. The last compliment or criticism that we received, the thing we're hoping to gain even this next year, with how we look in a mirror, with how many pounds are on the scale, Lord, we've spent our lives grasping for greatness, grasping for significance, expecting the wrong king. Lord, would we see what it means to be loved by a king who has made himself lowly, a king who is gentle and can be trusted, a king who, yes, will return in power and might and even justice, but a king even now who pleads with us to come. We come as your humble servants to the humble servant, knowing we could never serve anyone as greatly as we have been served in him. And it's for his sake we pray. Amen.